Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about how life is a journey, um, that everything is actually a process, and that this is built into, this is built into creation by, by design. Uh, I, I think it's important, you'll see as we, we develop this idea, I think that this is an important thought for, for, all, of our, for all of our sanity. Um, and, 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 and what I mean by that is, is that there's such, a, there's such a sense that all of us have that we just, we just want to get it right. And, and that, that desire for perfection itself is actually a very beautiful thing, but um, but it has to be it has to be harnessed and channeled properly. Otherwise, it can become a a crippling thing. Um, sometimes they call it perfectionism, and sometimes just they say that 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 great is the enemy of good. That's a, that's another formulation of that, which is meaning meaning to say that sometimes people won't allow themselves just to be good. They want to be great, and if they can't be great, then they don't even become good. So, 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 enim- so great is the enemy of good. That's how, that's how some people say it. Um, perfectionism, again, is, is a very lofty, to, to be perfect, to get it absolutely right. It's a very, very lofty goal. And um, if you think about it, all of us have souls, which is an aspect of Hashem. We have a piece of Hashem within us. And God is perfect. So we have an aspect of perfection within us. So in other words... It's coming from a very natural, very beautiful place. But what happens is, is the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, grabs hold of this sort of very lofty, idealistic desire that we have and can use it against us. Because, again, we think that, ah, it's not, it's not good enough, it's not good enough, so therefore I'm not going to do it at all. You know, let me give you sort of an example of this. Um, can you imagine... Well, sort of this would be kind of like kind of like a, a version of to, to instruct us to, to avoid this 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 uh, tendency. Can you imagine you walk outside on the sidewalk and you see a, a homeless person like lying on the sidewalk? Someone who clearly hasn't eaten in a long time, really like is hungry, and you say to yourself, Well, you know something, this person this person deserves a steak dinner. Uh, and then you say to yourself, well, I only have like $3 in my pocket. And then you walk on. So do, do you understand how, how wrong that is? <laughs> yeah. $3, even $1, could buy that person, you know, some water or, or a banana or, or something. You know, they, and, 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 and yet because you really had in your heart to give them a, a steak dinner, so then you end up doing nothing for the person. We do that for ourselves as well. This is um, one of the greatest one of the greatest tricks of the of the Yetzirah, of the negative inclination plays on us, and and I'll, I'll show you what it is. It's it's a real insight into like spiritual psychology right now. You ready for this? We go like this: that um, really, I don't want to be a hypocrite because I want to I want to be a person of truth. So then you say to yourself, well, so I'm going to try to, if I can't completely do this mitzvah, if I can only do part of this mitzvah, 
then I'm really a hypocrite. Because, you know, like for instance, Shabbos has many, many different parts to it. And for, for most people, it's, it's, you can, it's very hard to just sort of like wake up and now you're keeping Shabbos. There's many, many parts to it. So you, you really have to do one part at a time. And then slowly over time, then you, you, you're able to do the whole thing. But can you imagine a person says, well, wait a second, I'm driving to shul, or I'm, I'm going shopping, or I'm using my phone, or whatever it is. Therefore, I'm a hypocrite. Therefore, if I really want to be a person of truth, I won't even go to shul. <laughs> I'll show you how truthful I'm being. I'm not even going to go to shul. <laughs> like, do you see how the Yetzirah turns us inside out and takes our desire for perfection and then uses it against us to stop us from doing anything good? So we have to be very mindful of that. We have to be very mindful of that. And being mindful of that, how do, you, how do you become mindful of that? So now we're getting back to this idea that I started out with. This idea that life is a journey. That, that this is the process and, and you take a step at a time. And, and that's not just, here, here's the point. That's not just a concession to our frailty. That is actually how God wants us to go. Step by step, that you climb a ladder Rung by rung. Now I'm gonna, we're going to go deeper in a moment. You ready? Because I want to show you how you see this evidenced in all of creation. Okay. So to me, the most... There are many examples. But let's start here. Let's start with the existence of each one of us. Okay. So God certainly has it, God can do anything, God certainly has it in his ability to make you a fully grown person from the outset, from birth. Actually, that's how he made Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. He made them 20-year-olds on the spot, just instantly. So certainly God could do that with all of us. And yet, what does God do? He creates each person. We start off as an egg, the tiniest little thing. And then we grow and grow and grow into fully developed people over time. So, so that was, that's God's plan for us. You see that growth is built into his intention. He doesn't start us off as completed products. I'll give you an even more macro, a grander example of this. Our tradition is that God, when he created the entire universe, again, God could have just created the universe, right? That's what he did anyway. Could have just done that from the outset. That's, that's, not, what we, that's not what we follow. The rabbis teach that God took a single point of matter, very small, in, in, in ancient rabbinical language, we say it was the size of a mustard seed, but that's just kind of jargon to say something very small. And God took that very small thing and he widened it and expanded it till it became the physical universe. And if that sounds like the Big Bang Theory, it, it essentially is the Big Bang Theory, but this is thousands of years old from the Jewish people. But here you see again, God began very, very small with the intention of going much larger. 
Okay. You see that God at Mount Sinai did something that's absolutely um, just unique in all of human history. No other religion has this. No other religion would have the chutzpah, the temerity to say such a thing unless, unless it actually happened. The Jewish people are the only people to say the following, which is that God spoke at Mount Sinai and was heard by approximately two and a half million people all at once, and they all heard the same thing. That, that's amazing. Every other major religion has one prophet who says to his followers, trust me. Judaism says, no, God's, what, God can only speak to one person. God spoke to two and a half million people at once. Mass revelation. No other religion has this. Amazing, amazing. Because it's so easily disproven. That's the point. So it must have happened. And it did happen. But why am I bringing that up right now? Because you see that God could have created the Jewish people all at once. But what did he do? He started with one person, Abraham. (laughs) And then he grew it out. (laughs) Not only that, but the Torah says that the Jewish people are by design a very, very small people. God says that right in Devarim. He says, I'm making you very small. You're going to be the smallest of peoples, actually. So, So there we have it. In this week's Parsha, Yaakov Avinu has a dream, and God says, I'm giving you, the whole land of Israel is under you right now. And if you look at the Rashi there from the Medrash, it says that God folded up all of Israel and put it under his head. So there again you have, like, something very large put into a small place. Okay, so we're about to transition to a new idea, so let's just review. Everything... Everything, by design, God starts small and then goes large because that's the process that he wants from us to begin from our place of weakness, from our place of fallibility, and then to go from there to climb higher levels. And so we, shouldn't, we should understand that that, that is the, the way of the world and that we shouldn't stop ourselves from proceeding, even though we're sort of like, well, what do I know? And, you know, I'm, I'm messing up all over the place. But the fact that you want to try, that's, that's, no, 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 you're doing everything right. You're actually doing everything right at that moment. Just keep moving forward. Okay. So now, you see something very cool, which is sort of a cor- corollary of what I just talked about. How you start small, and then and then it, it expands, okay? What's the corollary? There's a, um, a series of miracles in the Torah. The, the Torah itself doesn't make much of a deal of it, but if you look at the commentaries, they, they, they spell it out. It's very interesting. Where on a number of, different, uh, number of different times, God takes a very large thing and puts it into a small place. So like I mentioned, the land of Israel under Yaakov Avinu's head, that's, that's one example, right? Another example is Aaron at one point is told, he, he holds, I, be, I believe it's either ashes or sand or whatever it is, and it says that he held two handfuls in one hand. Now, by definition, you cannot hold two handfuls in one hand. <laughs> that is a miracle. <laughs> 
Another example. A couple of other places. You see that God says that the, in the Torah it says that the whole Jewish people stood by the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Mishkat. And the commentators say, well, wait a second. How do two million people stand by a doorway? It, it can't be. It can't be, except, except that it is. So you see, and there, there are many other examples. By the way, the rabbis say something really wild. Do you want to hear something really wild? That the Torah, the Ark of the Torah in the Holy of Holies actually took up no space. And they learned that out from different measurements over Tanakh of exactly what the dimensions of the Holy of Holies was and what the dimension of the Ark was. And they work out that the Ark, which contained the tablets of the covenant, the Torah itself, actually took up no space, which means that the Holy of Holies is this quantum portal, basically, that defies time and space. And I asked a rabbi about this one time. I said, well, what are we supposed to learn from that? And he said a great answer. He said, Rabbi Warch, he said, that as you, as you as an individual come closer to the Holy of Holies, you begin to defy time and space more and more. <laughs> and if you think about, like, Sadiqim, like our, our holiest ones, it's true. The, the, the laws of nature start to bend around them. And so, so that's, a, that's a compelling example. But you see, from what I'm saying is, is that we start small and then it goes wide, but you also see that God has put everything that he wants to into that small place to begin with. So that initial point already contains everything. And the best example is DNA. DNA is, your DNA is with you from your, from the, the, your, your very, very beginning point. And yet, that's all the information of what color eyes you're going to be, how tall you're going to be, all sorts of stuff is all contained right from the very outset. If you think of it as a balloon with no air in it, right? So that's, that's, that's the DNA. And then you blow it up till it's like a full balloon, but, what if it, but it's just the, it's the same balloon. Just now bigger. So, so again, don't be tricked by your perfectionistic urges. They come from a very good place because you have an aspect of perfection within you. That's your soul. That's a piece of God. So to desire to put that into the world is very, very natural. But if we fall short of that, we will necessarily fall short of that. We can't allow that to stop us from realizing what it is we have inside of us. Right? We can't let the great be the enemy of the good. Okay. So now, I want to develop this further and to pick up on an idea that we talked about last week, but we'll... We'll review it, and we'll go deeper into it. Yaakov and Esav. We can call it the War of the Worlds, right? Yaakov and Esav are twins. And and yet, uh, they're opposites in so many ways. 
And Esav, the Torah tells us, is born like a grown man in terms of his hair. His body at birth is covered with hair. And in fact, I saw a medrash, which I thought was really wild, that says not only was he covered with hair, he had a beard and molars when he was born. Right? So that's like really getting out there. But what are the rabbis like really like trying to express by this? So Esav comes from the word asui, which means made. And this is the answer to why the rabbis are so mad at Esav. Why are we so mad at Esav? And the answer is because on a spiritual level, Esav considers himself, and his physicality attests to this, Esav considers himself a finished product from birth. You see, this is the opposite of Torah. Torah tells you, tells us, that life is a journey. Life is a growth process. And that we're growing and growing till our last breath. And if you stop short of your last breath and think, okay, this is who I am, that's the greatest proof that you haven't made it. That's when you leave the track and you, you veer off the track. Because that's, that's what Asaph symbolizes. I'm done. Okay, now with that in mind, I want to explore Rashi and kind of add some, some new ideas to this, to this Rashi. So Rashi says that when the Torah um, says that Yaakov and Esav are twins... It uses the word tomim. And if you want to see that, that's uh, in, in, in Breshis, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 24. So the word tomim, Rashi seizes on that word because he says, hey, wait a second. We've got another set of twins in the Torah. And that set of twins, when the word twins is used, it uses a different word. It's still the word tomim, but there are extra letters in it. And why are there extra letters in it, says Rashi? Because it's, by the way, it's Yehuda and Tamar's twins. And Tamar has these twins. And it's, it's they're named Peretz and Zerah. Okay? So Rashi points out that these twins were tzaddikim. They were holy people. And because they were holy people, the word for twins in the Torah is spelled with more letters. Okay, it's spelled with less letters by Yaakov and Esav because Esav was wicked. And because he's wicked, there's less letters to describe it. Okay, so remember, every letter in the Torah is super holy. So if it's like missing letters, there's a defect in the word. And Rashi attributes that defect in the word directly to Esav. It's missing letters because of Esav. Okay, that's the end of the Rashi. So I thought I was really super intrigued by this. And I was like, okay, what letters are missing? Maybe that can give us another level into this, 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 this whole teaching. So I looked, and the letters that are missing are the letters Yud and Aleph. Okay? Those are by the, the righteous set of twins, Peretz and Zerah, right? Tamar's children. But by, by Esav and Yaakov... No, Yud and Aleph are missing. And we're told by Rashi that Esav is 100% responsible for that. Okay, so I thought to myself, 
Yud and Aleph, Yud and Aleph. What, what, what's the significance of that? Why those two letters? And then it came to me that in Hebrew grammar, if you put the letter Yud in front of a word, or if you put the letter Aleph in front of the word, it makes that word into the future tense. Now, what is it that we've just been saying? We've been saying that Esav considers himself a finished product. He's already done. What does he need the future for? So the letters Yud and Aleph, the future tense, are missing because Esav doesn't need the future. He's already done. He's already finished. He's done growing. So then, I thought about it some more. But you know something? Wait, wait, wait. There's, there's more to this. There's more to this. I thought, who are the original twins in the Torah? Right? So, so you could come up with different answers. I'll tell you my answer. The original twins in the Torah are the sun and the moon. Hmm. So it says, by the creation of the sun and the moon, it says, God made these two, I'm paraphrasing, these two great entities. So, so if they seem... They, they, they are equal in stature. He made these two. And then by the end of that same verse, it says one was bigger and one was smaller. So the rabbis are like, wait a second. At the beginning of the verse, they were the same size. At the end of the verse, one is big and one is small. What happened? So they provide the following explanation. And again, you, you see the methodology of how the rabbis unpack the Torah here. It's, it's all in code. Everything is deeply coded. You have to learn the language of, of um, how these things work. Right? So, so let's decode it, okay? So here's the Medrash. The Medrash says that... Now, you, you have to visualize this, okay? The heavens, the sky is like a crown, okay? And the sun and the moon, they're the same size here. They're like two heads, Okay? Two heads, one crown. And the moon says to God, is it proper for two heads to share the same crown? And God says, you know what? You're right. Make yourself small. So probably not the answer the moon was looking for. (laughs) And then I heard from Rabbi Beryl Wine that every time you look at the moon, it's a Musser lesson. It's a lesson in humility, right? Isn't that interesting? So, so, so let's go, let's go further. So that's, that's the, that's the sun and the moon. Okay. Now listen to this. This is, this is, to me, this blows my mind, you know? So I'm thinking about it. Those are the original twins, right? And do you know, so when is the sun? When is the moon? Do you know the difference in the number of days between the solar year and the lunar year? It's Yud Aleph. It's 11 days. Isn't that something? Yud is 10, Aleph is 1. That's 11 days. In other words, those twins are missing 11, also 11. 11 days. You want to hear something else that's amazing? That the, I think I saw this from Rabbeinu Bachaya. On Rosh Chodesh, which is, you know, the, it's, a, uh, it's, a real, it's a religious event. It's a Torah event. Every new moon, every new month is a, Special day, it's a holiday. So, um, so we bring special offerings for Rosh Chodesh, that's for the new month. 
Do you know how many offerings we bring for the new month? Eleven. It's, it's the rectification of the sun and the moon. That's, that's, what, that, that's what that eleven is. Um, so, so let's apply it to our three sets of twins. We have the sun and the moon. We have Esav and Yaakov. And we have Tamar's children. Right? Peretz and Zerah. Those are our three twins. So those 11, those, those 11 days are missing. And, um, and then you really see it. You really see it with Yaakov and Esau. This disparity that comes into the world. See, Esau is covered with hair. Esau represents really like the physical world. And God is concealed in this world, just like Esav is covered over completely. See, so Esav represents concealment. You want to hear something unbelievably deep? On Rosh Chodesh, we would bring a sin offering. And the rabbis ask in the Gomorrah, in Chulun, the rabbis ask, why is there a sin offering for Rosh Chodesh? Who did anything wrong? We're just celebrating the new month right now. Why is there a sin offering? You ready for this? This is, this is off the charts. So the Gomorrah brings, this is the Gomorrah, the Gomorrah brings that God says, bring the sin offering for me. So the rabbis ask, God sinned? God has to bring a sin offering? What sin did God do that God has to bring a sin offering? And the answer that Gomorrah gives is that God lessened the light of the moon. Okay, now, this is what I told you before. This is very encoded, extremely encoded. What does that mean that God sinned by lessening the light of the moon. What does that mean? Okay? Listen. It's very, 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 very deep. What it means is that God lessened his light in the world. See, God had to lessen his light in this world in order to give us free choice. Angels don't have free choice. Angels see the complete revelation, well, not the complete revelation of God. Even angels don't see the complete revelation of God. Only God sees the complete revelation of God, by the way. So, but angels see tremendous levels higher than we do. So much so that they see the the obvious presence of God in front of them, they can't do anything wrong. So they haven't got any free choice, right? But God wanted to create a realm where there could be a creature who struggles to serve him. A creature who could do wrong, but instead chooses to do right. That is unique in all of creation. That's what it means, by the way. Yisrael means one who wrestles with God, right? One who wrestles, you, you, you wrestle and yet you arrive at the right place. That's unique in all of creation. It says that the angels themselves gasp in envy 
When a person struggles to do the right thing and then chooses the right thing. This doesn't exist anywhere in all the spiritual worlds. God wanted that place. But in order to have that place, he had to create free choice. And in order to create free choice, he had to conceal an aspect of his light so that we could choose and and say, I don't know. Everyone here? Everyone follow? Okay. However, now listen to this. Listen to how great God is, how fantastic God is. However, God also understood that by lessening his light, he was going to create a realm where people could do the wrong thing. And even though we are 100% responsible for all of our actions, nonetheless, God says on some level, you wouldn't have done that wrong thing unless I had concealed myself, unless I had lessened the light of the moon in the coded version. So bring a sin offering for me. (laughs) Can you imagine? I have the chills. Can you imagine? Can you imagine who God is? Right? How much God loves us that he goes, look, okay, I want you to do right. I'm giving you the ability to do right. In fact, I'm commanding you to do right. However, if you do wrong, that's, that's partly on me. So, amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So, so we're going to get to a place of perfection. A place where the oneness of God is going to become clear again. Openly revealed. Do you know, it says that at the time of Mashiach, when Mashiach comes, the Jewish people will no longer accept converts. Very interesting. Because then it's going to be obvious. So everyone's going to go, okay, you know, like, let's go. Like, but at that point, you, no one's exercising their free choice anymore. Do you understand? It says at the end of days, the Sahara is going to be shechted in Gomorrah Sukkah. It's going to be eliminated, the Sahara. So that, that ability to be confused, that ability to be tested, that ability to see darkness, that, that is going to vanish from the world. The world is going to reach a level of perfection where all is clear. And so that's the, what we talk about the messianic period. So when that happens, so to speak, the sun and the moon are going to be equal again. Do, do you understand? Now, listen to this. Listen to this. So, so, so Yaakov and Esav, you have the missing letters with Esav, right? You have that missing 11, 11 with Esav, because Esav already considers himself finished, but the world's not finished yet. <laughs> right? Like, that's so many people's problem with this world, because everyone says, if there's a God, why is everything so messed up? Because the world's not finished yet. If you buy into the complete, like, look, you look at this world, it looks so great, it looks so organized, right? That's like Asa being born with a beard and molars. (laughs) It's done. It's got to be done, right? How could it be this developed and not be done? Except it's not done yet. So that's the, that's, the, that's the illusion. That's the illusion of this world. That's the missing 11. 
But in the Messianic period, that's going to be rectified. And now, this is amazing. Let's go back to our last set of twins. Tamar's twins, Peretz and Zerah. You ready for this? They have the Yud and the Aleph in them, right? They're spelled out because they were both Sadiqim. They have the full spelling with the 11 included in it. And they are the progenitors of the Messianic line. The Messiah is born from that line. So it all like completely comes together. So, again, let's, uh, let's just review. We have this notion that God begins small, and then it expands and it expands and it expands. I'll give you another example of that, by the way. Our tradition is that God created the world with ten utterances. So there's a very famous question that's asked about that. Why not do it with one utterance? God can do it with one utterance. So, so there are different answers to that, by the way. There are different answers to that. But, but again, you see the same question, that, that God, by intention, begins small and then goes large. Remember, the example that we, we always give, I heard it from Rabbi Tatz the first time. I love it so much because... It's so clear, and it's also on my favorite word in the world, Breshis. Zohar says the entire Torah is contained within the first word of the Torah, in, in, in the word Breshis, out of beginnings, right? In the beginning, however you want to translate it. So Rabbi Tatz noted, what does the word beginning suggest? If you just think about it for a moment. Beginning means there's a middle and an end. In other words, the very first word of the Torah, the blueprint of all of creation, from the very first word, is telling you, you're on a journey. This world is an unfolding process. And you and I and all of us together are part of that. We're all part of that unfolding process. And we can't allow that aspect of perfection, which is in us, our soul, which is a piece of God, which is perfect, to stop ourselves from falling down and getting back up and really learning how to master life. And this process, this process is an unstoppable train. This process of the revelation and the clarity that will come when the whole world sees that God is one. It's in progress. It's in progress. You, you can see if you look at history, you see how history right now is speeding up at levels that, that it's, it's never, nothing is approached ever in history, in the history of humanity, the amount of revelation that's going on on a daily basis. And I'll tell you something really strong. You ready for this? God is revealing more secrets now than he's ever revealed in the world. And you ready for this? Just really try to concentrate on this. But God wants to maintain our free choice. Okay? Because remember, the whole world is built, built on free choice. That's what we said. God wanted to create a realm 
where we could choose to serve him, which means that there has to be some darkness in the world because otherwise we don't have a choice, right? So God wants to preserve a choice. At the same time, though, history is speeding up and we're getting closer to the redemption. So God is dumping information loads of huge amounts of secrets into the world. So how can God reveal all of these secrets into the world while we still maintain our free choice? He calls it science. (laughs) It's amazing. Isn't this amazing? And then you go like this. Oh no, I don't believe in that stuff. I believe in science. What is science? Science is God telling you all these secrets. But he's telling you in a way where you can maintain your free choice and still deny that he exists. Look at how amazing God is. He found a way to give us all of this information while still maintaining our free choice. Do you think if God like showed you what it is that you're made out of, like to the cell, you would go, oh God, I'm, I, I'm just I'm keeping kosher, I'm keep, whatever, whatever you want me to keep, I'm keeping. Right? But now, as he's like doing all these levels of revelation, he's actually allowing certain quarters of humanity to strengthen the resolve that he doesn't exist at all. This is incredible. This is incredible. If you see how God is running circles around people. You know, like my favorite example that I, I always love, Rabbi Green said it, the, the fastest gunslinger in the world, right? He says, you want, you, want to see, you want to see how fast I draw? You want to see again? <laughs> so... <laughs> We didn't see it the first time. So, so everyone gets to decide. Everyone gets to decide. You know, I, I went to fancy schools, you know, and um, I'm telling you, nobody can convince me. I don't care how high your IQ is. No one can convince me that this world just kind of like, and then there was this world. (laughs) And then this collided into that, and here we go. Right? Like, it, it defies all logic. It defies all common sense. Just basic common sense. My, 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 my favorite example, I love this example so much. There are different versions of this, but I, I like this version of it, where some scholars or doubters or who knows, enlightened people, whoever they were, came to this particular rabbi to ask about the existence of God, right? And they noticed this piece of, this poem written in the most beautiful calligraphy on, on, on his table. And they, they're, they, it's remarkable, right? And he say, where, where did this come from? And he says, oh, a, uh, a, a jar of ink spilled over and made it. And they say, what, what are you talking about? Like, every letter is so beautiful and, the, and so uniquely shaped. And, and the letters combine to form words. And the words combine to form beautiful thoughts. 
How could it be that a jar of ink spilled over and made this? And he says, the world is vastly more complex than this poem. If you think someone actually wrote that, how could it be that someone didn't make the world? The following are questions and answers. It's, it's funny. A lot of ideas came up when you had, in my head, when you had the word, Esau was a made man, that that was the root of his name. I, I kind of thought of the, the Italian mafia movies where, you, are you a made man? That was their goal, was to be a made man. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's funny. And what does yeah. that even mean? Yeah. Right, know? right. So, uh, right, and, and, and a made man is a murderer, by the right. way. So the idea that you correlate this idea of being finished with, with essentially you're murdering yourself at that moment, but they're also including other people in that definition, <laughs> sadly, sadly. And there's also another expression that's popular, I guess, in our societies, to, to have it made. Right, right. As though, as though you're ever done. As though you're ever done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And very good. To be the goal. Like, yeah, you know. very good. Very good. Yeah. The the question of um, how do we have free will um, is a is a is a very famous philosophical uh, question that's been discussed for thousands of years. Um, so just just to lay it out. Um, Let's say uh, I'm holding, let's say I'm holding a red candy and a green candy, right? And then, and then, I say, choose. What do you want? You want the red candy or the green candy, right? And I choose the green candy. And then you show me. You wrote down. He's going to choose the green candy. So you already knew before I chose what I was going to do. So how did I have free choice if you already knew? That, that's, the, that, that's, that, that's one way of articulating it. And, and um, they, they say that this question is as wide and as deep as the oceans. <laughs> this is, there are different versions of this, but, but it's, they call it free will, free will versus determinism or free will, free will versus fate. So I can tell you... Um, how I understand it. I'll give you my understanding of it, okay? Which is, I, I learned this in, in, in a geometry class, um, uh, which is the following, that, it, that, that parallel lines don't intersect, okay? That's, that's actually the, the definition of parallel lines, is that they don't intersect, right? But if you um, do what's called a, a Boolean geometry or non-Euclidean geometry, which is geometry against a, a, in three dimensions as opposed to just two dimensions. Like two dimensions would just take a sheet of paper and draw two straight lines next to each other. That would be parallel lines. That's two dimensions. But if you put parallel lines on a curved space, they actually intersect. Parallel lines actually intersect. That, that's, that's an amazing thing. So, so the way... I apply that to, to this question about free will and determinism is that there are certain questions which are absolutely um, unsolvable, unsolvable in this dimension. But in higher dimensions, they are not a contradiction at all. 
And, and, and if you, we'll go even deeper than that, okay? Which is that I heard from Rabbi Korupkin in the name of the, the Ishvitzer Rebbe. He was, he was actually giving a shir about the Ishvitzer. I don't know if, it, if the Ishvitzer said this or if this was Rabbi Korupkin, but either way, it's an awesome thought and very true. Logic itself is a creation. God is not subject to the laws of logic. God created something called logic and hardwired our minds with this thing called logic. It's a total creation. And so one of the, one of the failings or one of the sort of like hilarious, in my opinion, traps that a first person falls into is that God creates our brain and then with our limited brain, we tell God what he can and can't do. That's actually ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. And then we think we're so smart because we figured out what God can and can't do, right? Because I'm so great, right? It's, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. And, and the only antidote to that is humility, by the way. It's the only antidote to that. Um, so... A good friend of mine years ago, and this had a very big effect on my own spiritual journey, he was not quote-unquote religious, by the way, but he just kind of posed this question to me out of the blue one day. He said, can an, can an ant outthink a man? And I said, no, of course, of course not. An ant can't outthink a man. He said, so how can man outthink God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, why is it uh you mentioned about the candle, but why is it that? that, that that's the question. What does the one be the sun? Would be the greatest among the most? The deepest, the deepest, yeah. Would be the sun? So, you know, the way Rip Shlomo put it was there's certain people who you, that by the light of the sun, you have certain business meetings, things like that. But if you had to see that person at night, like, you wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> you just you haven't got, like, the vessels. It's like, you know what? You're like a business guy. I see you during the daytime. That's what it is. Like, the soul is very sensitive. Other people you can see at nighttime. Because it's sort of like, it's, you're in a different mode. You're, your heart is in a different place. And then there's the candlelight. That's, that's a very special light. That's, that's really even, even a light of greater closeness. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.